The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. In 2014, there was a two-day strike that shut down much of the London underground subway system. And as a result, thousands of commuters had to figure out alternate ways to get to their workplace since the subway trains were no longer an option. And once the strike was over, uh, the significant majority of people just went right back to using the underground system, just like they did before the strike. But surprisingly, researchers found out that about one in 20 commuters kept using the new routes that they discovered during the strike. And commenting on this phenomenon, Tim Harford uh, writes in his book, Messy, presumably they had discovered that it was faster or cheaper or preferable in some way, other way, to their old routine. We tend to think that commuters have their route to work honed to perfection. Evidently not. A substantial minority promptly found an improvement to the journey they had been making for years. All they needed was an unexpected shock to force them to seek out something better. The argument of this book is that we often succumb to the temptation of a tidy-minded approach when we would be better served by embracing a degree of mess. As Harvard points out, you would think that these commuters would have figured out the absolutely best possible route to get to work since they do it almost every single day. But this disruption caused by the strike resulted in a number of them figuring out an actual better way to get to their work. And I think this illustration captures uh, the theme of almost all of the messages that I've been preaching during this pandemic. In many ways, this crisis is an unwelcomed intrusion into our familiar routines. And many of us are just counting the days before we can get back to our normal lives. But I think, and, and I think this crisis in particular has been really hard for those of us who thrive on order and predictability and the need for total control over every aspect of our lives. But week after week, I've been challenging you to embrace this disruption as a rare opportunity to take stock of your life and to really ask yourself what normal should look like when the crisis is over. In other words, if nothing changes in your life after all of this, I think you have lost a real God-given opportunity. Last week, I talked about how one of the great paradoxes in Jesus' teaching was that in trying so desperately to save our lives, we end up losing them. But the only way for us to truly find our life is to lose it in Christ. In other words, there's this deadly instinct that steers us toward greater selfishness that will in the end just destroy us. We can find our lives only when we finally let go of our efforts to save ourselves and to give ourselves wholly to God. 
And as we follow the example that Christ himself set for us, we come to discover that one of the great secrets of life is that true joy and freedom come not in pursuing our own needs, not in being constantly self-absorbed with what will make us happy, but in serving God and serving others and giving of ourselves to them and their needs. Because that's what we were created by God to do. I discovered the secret for myself during my first mission trip to Kenya as a high school student, spending a summer building a church for the local believers there. Up to that point in my life, I was driven by this singular goal to become a doctor, thinking that that would secure my happiness. But chasing that dream didn't make me happier. But there in Kenya with no electricity or plumbing and living in tents the whole summer, totally exhausted at the end of every day, I found a joy that I had never known in my life up to that moment. It was as if I had discovered a missing piece to the puzzle of my life that would help me to understand what my purpose was. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to 7, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As Paul sees the end of his life drawing near, he describes himself like a drink offering that has almost been completely emptied, poured out to the service of God and to others. I think that's a wonderful testimony of what a life in Christ ought to look like. And I pray that that's the testimony that every one of us might be able to make at the end of our lives. As we continue to live under these restrictions created by this crisis, I want to invite you today to reflect on whether you are headed in a direction to finish well in your own life. And to even think about how you would define what finishing well even means. Twelve years ago, an obituary showed up in a local California paper, the Vallejo Times-Herald. And it shocked everyone when they read it. The woman who had passed away was Dolores Aguilar. And her obituary was posted in the paper by her daughter. And it read, Dolores had no hobbies, made no contribution to society, and rarely shared a kind word or deed in her life. I speak for the majority of her family when I say her presence will not be missed by many. Very few tears will be shed, and there will be no lamenting over her passing. Her family will remember Dolores, and amongst ourselves we will remember her in our own way, which were mostly sad and troubling times throughout the years. We may have some fond memories of her, and perhaps we will think of those times too. But I truly believe at the end of the day, all of us will really only miss what we never had, a good and kind mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. 
I hope she is finally at peace with herself. As for the rest of us left behind, I hope this is the beginning of a time of healing and learning to be a family again. There will be no service, no prayers, and no closure for the family she spent a lifetime tearing apart. We cannot come together in the end to see to it that her grandchildren and great-grandchildren can say their goodbyes. So I say here for all of us, goodbye, Mom. Can you think of anything more tragic than words like this written by your own family members at the occasion of your death? How sad it is when those who survive you see your death as a hopeful moment when healing might begin for all the wounds that you've inflicted on them. It made me wonder, how does someone end up becoming a Dolores Aguilar? Was she always like this her whole life? Or did she become this person little by little over the years? What were the course corrections that she could have made before her life became such a tragedy? Were there moments of possible transformation and redemption that she never seized? Voices that she never heeded? And can I ask you, how will you be remembered at your death? What will be said of you to sum up your life? Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. In other words, the only way to live a worthwhile life is to regularly pause and examine ourselves and evaluate the choices that we're making. And so I want to invite you to examine the direction of your life. And the way I want to do that this morning is by looking at the life of this King Asa in the Old Testament. Someone who started out so strongly, but actually didn't finish very well at all. After David's son Solomon died, a civil war arose, and Israel was divided into two nations. The northern ten tribes became the nation of Israel, while the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin became the nation of Judah. Solomon's son Rehoboam was the first king of Judah during that divided kingdom era. And when Rehoboam died, his son Abijah would rule, but he only ruled for three years, and then he too died. After Abijah's death, his son Asa became king over Judah. And unlike his father and his grandfather, Asa followed hard after God, at least in the beginning. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2 to 5, it reads, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. One of the first things Asa would do when he became king was to get rid of all of the idolatry that was rampant in the land. And not only was Asa a religious reformer, but he also proved himself to be a very able and capable king. In 2 Chronicles 14, verse 6, it says, He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. 
No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. So by building up the defenses of these border cities in the nation of Judah, uh, the entire country experienced years of peace and prosperity. And then about a decade into his reign, Asa faced what would be one of the first tests of his leadership as king. The Cushites, who were believed to be an African people, uh, marched out to invade Judah with a massive army. Asa had also built up a substantial army that numbered over 300,000 soldiers. But realizing that he was vastly outnumbered, he turned to God for help. And so in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 14, it says, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. And so God answered Asa's prayer, and the armies of Judah decimated the much larger Cushite army. And the men of Judah would return to Jerusalem with an enormous cache of wealth from all of the spoils of war. And after this military victory, Asa had the entire nation of Judah gathered together and swear an oath of allegiance to God alone. In 2 Chronicles 15, verse 15, it says, All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Asa demonstrated the depth of his commitment to God in verse 16 of chapter 15. It says, King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Maka, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down, broke it up, and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Even his sense of family loyalty was not greater than his loyalty to God. You can imagine how hard that must have been and how awkward it was to depose his own grandmother as the queen mother because of her refusal to let go of that idolatry. And so this is how things went for the first 35 years of King Asa's reign. Everything went well. There was peace in the land and the idolatry was removed. But then in the 36th year of his reign, Basha, the king of Israel, made threatening advances against Judah. And he did it by building up the defenses of the city of Ramah, which was very near the border between Israel and Judah. But unlike 25 years earlier during that Cushite invasion, Asa didn't seek God's help this time. Instead, he took the silver and gold from the temple in the treasury and he would use it to bribe this guy, Ben-Hadad, who was the king of Aram. And what he said was this, I will give you silver and gold if you will break your treaty with Israel and instead make an alliance with Judah, with me. And his plan actually seemed to have worked because Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, accepts his offer. And he attacks Israel at their northern border. And this forces King Basha to pull out of Ramah in order to defend his northern border. 
And that would give Asa the opportunity to defeat Rama, which is now utterly unprotected. And after conquering Rama, Asa then dismantles the fortifications of that city and would use the materials there to build up the defenses in his own nearby cities in Judah. And from a purely military standpoint, it was actually a really clever plan, attacking Israel on two fronts, from the north and the south. And it got the job done because Basha was now no longer able to threaten Judah after that. In fact, for the citizens of Judah, Asa must have seemed like a great king throughout his entire reign, right down to the end of his life. Because if you go to chapter 16 and look at verses 13 to 14, it says this, that in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. They buried him in the tomb that he had cut out for himself in the city of David. They laid him in a bier covered with spices and various blended perfumes, and they made a huge fire in his honor. The people of Judah showed how much they loved and respected Asa by lighting this massive fire in his honor at his funeral. And you know, judging only by his accomplishments as king, Asa went to his grave as a hero in the eyes of his subjects. But there is a huge danger when we use our successes or frankly even our failures as a way of gauging whether or not we're doing well in the eyes of God. We need to be on our guard against a really dangerous deception that because things are going well overall in our life, we must be doing well spiritually. And you know, the reality is that as we get older, we do often become more competent and gain a better understanding of how to succeed in life. And so resting on nothing more than our experiences and our competency that we've gained over the years, the truth is you may reach the end of your life with a rather impressive resume of the things you've accomplished. And yet, here is also the truth, is that God may nevertheless have a very different assessment of your life. You know, the problem is that as we continue to grow in life experiences and competency to do things on our own, we feel that we don't need God's help very much like we did when we were younger, do we? You know, right after his military victory, God sent a prophet, Hanani, to rebuke Asa. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 7 to 9, it says, At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. So God tells Asa 
that although it may look like he came out on top, because of his clever plan to make this alliance with the king of Aram, what God says through his prophet is that that was actually a very short-sighted victory. And he reminds him that when he sought God's help and defeated the Cushites much earlier in his reign, that that victory proved to be so decisive that Judah experienced decades of peace and prosperity after that. But through this prophet Hanani, God told Asa that if he had once again sought God's help, he would have given him victory, not only over Basha and Israel, but even over Aram as well. But because he didn't think he needed God's help and figured out his own solution by making this alliance with this utterly unstable enemy that could not be trusted, God told Asa that Judah would experience years of war to come. And you know I wonder how many of us are living in this middle space that Asa created for himself. In other words, what I'm saying is this, when I talk about this middle space, it's not necessarily experiencing abject failure, but also not experiencing the true power of God in our lives. You know, when you don't look to God for help, it doesn't mean that your life is just going to fall apart, does it? And that all you're ever going to know in your life is failure and struggle. You may very well experience successes, even if you just rely on your own strength. But those successes gained by your own power may be at the cost of so many greater things that God could have done in your life if you had only looked to him and his power. I guess what I'm basically asking of you this morning is this. Does the story of your life require any further explanation beyond your own efforts and your own competency? Or does your life testify to a God who is greater than all of your failures and limitations? Asa's reaction to this rebuke reveals a much deeper darkness that has been growing in his heart in these later years of his life. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 10, it says, Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. I don't think this is the way that Asa would have responded in his younger years. But now Asa is no longer teachable. He is no longer humble. When confronted, his reaction is to attack the messenger. And so in his rage, he imprisons the prophet. And you get a sense that he has really lost control of himself. That this wasn't some kind of abnormal or exceptional moment of weakness in his life. Because we're told that around that same time, he becomes something of a tyrant, brutally abusing some of his subjects. Verse 12 reveals just how total Asa's rejection of God had become in these later years of his life. 
In the 30th, 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Despite his desperate medical condition and his utter inability to solve this problem, Asa stubbornly refuses to seek God's help. Instead, he leans even harder into his dependency on his doctors as the only solution that he is willing to accept for this foot disease that he's developed. And now, Asa lived in a world in which God was no longer a part of the picture at all. You know, here is the thing. If all we will be judged by is our accomplishments in our life, then maybe you can achieve what in the view of others may be viewed as a successful life. And frankly, through no one else's abilities but your own. But here is also the truth that God tells us in his word. That God himself isn't so much interested in what we can accomplish in our lives as he is with the person that we become and our relationship with him. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 24 captures this heart of God when it says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. If it's only about building up a resume of accomplishments, maybe you can make an argument, I don't really need God in my life. But if it's about experiencing the deepest levels of change in our heart, in our character, for us to become the person that God wills us to be, that is something none of us can accomplish apart from God's power at work in us. You know, framed in a certain way, we can say, I don't need God. And you can actually truthfully find pockets of success. You know, I think about King David and all of the acclaim and success that he experienced as a warrior and as a poet, as a leader of a nation. But at the same time, as we looked at the life of David recently, we saw what an abject failure he was as a husband and as a father. And all of us will come to those places that force us to look more deeply inward and realize, I do not have the resources to be what I need to be to meet the needs that I am facing. But here is, I think, the most important thing to take away from what I'm sharing with you this morning, and it's found in verse 9 of chapter 16. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. This is God's heart toward us, is that he is constantly scanning the earth 
searching for those who actually want his help, who realize their need for him so that his power can be at work in their lives to do so much more than they could possibly do by their own strength. And this is the faith that we need this day, is to realize that in the face of all of our disappointments and all of our weaknesses and all of our failures, and frankly, truthfully, even in the face of all of our successes, there comes from us a recognition that we need God and that the God that we need is one who actually longs to come alongside us and help us in our moment of need. And so as I close the message this morning, I want to ask you simply, how do you assess your own life? I wonder if for some of us as we're getting older, the truth is that we also are gaining a certain level of competency and experience in our lives such that we don't really feel like we need God very much. Maybe prayer has become more of a formality rather than an act of desperate need. Because the truth is, you already know what you're going to do. And you already know what you're capable of doing. And when you assess that, you think, you know, I'll get by. And you truthfully have gained a certain level of competency so that no matter what you attempt in your life, you know, it's not going to be an abject failure. You're not going to totally flop in whatever you do. But maybe in having that modicum of success in your life, what you're ultimately being robbed of is the fullness of a life empowered by God as you absolutely lean on Him and depend on Him to see what he could do in you and through you. You know, even as I prepared this message, it really made me think about um, my work as a pastor of this church, of ICC. And, you know, leading right up to this whole um, COVID crisis, I think things were feeling very upbeat at ICC and um, you know, I felt like we were on a good footing, and I felt like the ministry was growing, our numbers were growing, new visitors coming every week. And now the truth is, in light of this whole crisis, I don't know, things just feel a lot more unstable, uncertain. And, you know, it really made me think something very frightening is like, I think in the eyes of the world, I, I have been around the block enough, I've been pastoring churches long enough to basically know that I'm not going to totally flop and fall on my face leading this church. And maybe the truth is, if the whole goal is just to beat out the competition and just try to be a little above the curve, a little better than average, here in the Chicagoland area, you know, we'll, we'll, be a, we'll be a success, however we define that. But is that really the goal? Is that really what God desires? 
what he would consider to be a success? I don't think so. It's given me pause to think about whether I will finish well. What is it that God wants of me more than anything else? Not my accomplishments, not my competencies, but an absolutely desperate heart that recognizes my own need for God. I think one of the great things that is coming out of this whole crisis is that we've gone from monthly prayer meetings to weekly ones. And we've basically seen the attendance at these prayer meetings, because we're doing it virtually on Zoom, essentially triple. And my hope for us as a church is not that we will rest on the laurels of our successes, that we are better than any other church around or whatever the measuring stick is going to be. But my desperate hope and prayer is that we will be a church that understands our absolute need for God and that without Him, we can do nothing. And this is the reflection that I want to invite you to this week as we think about the life of this man, Asa, who started off so strongly pursuing God with all of his heart and absolutely dependent on Him in his younger years. But as he grew older, so his heart grew harder. And he became more proud until sadly he finished his life absolutely turning his back on God. And I pray that through the humility and the desperation we feel during this crisis, it would lead us to the deeper spiritual truth that in every way we need God and his power in our life. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer for not only myself but for our whole church, that we would know what the true answer is to finishing well in this life, that it is not rooted in our resume of the list of accomplishments that we will be able to achieve over this lifetime, but that it rests simply in the testimony that we know you and that we depend on you. And that every day, because of your power at work in us, we have become just a little bit more like Jesus Christ. And so give us the faith to recognize what you are pursuing in us and that we would surrender to those purposes in our own lives. And as we do so, may each one of us reach the end of our lives with no regrets, but only joy and only praises to you for what you have accomplished in us. For we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May God in his grace give you a heart of wisdom that you will not lean on your own understanding but trust him in all things. May you not be wise in your own eyes but in all your ways acknowledge him so that he will make your path straight. May you leave a legacy on this earth of a life well-lived, dependent on the power that Christ alone can supply. Amen.